This is the Content Strategy Podcast, and I'm your host, Christina Halverson. On each and every episode, I interview someone I admire who's doing meaningful work in content strategy and all its adjacent disciplines. If you care about making content more useful, usable, and inclusive for all, welcome in. You have found your people. Welcome back to the Content Strategy Podcast. I have the most delightful guest today. Instead of complaining about the weather, which frankly, it's summer in Minnesota. Now I have nothing to complain about. Everything is beautiful and perfect. Uh, I'm going to dive right in to introducing him. Friends and neighbors, this is Chris Beatty. Chris is the head of UX writing at Figma. Chris accidentally founded National Novel Writing Month, which you likely know as NaNoWriMo, in 1999 and oversaw the event's growth from 21 friends to more than 300,000 writers in 90 countries. Chris now serves as a board member emeritus for NaNoWriMo and spends his days wrangling words at Figma and endlessly revising his own novels. He is the author of No Plot, No Problem, and the co-author of Ready, Set, Novel. His quest for the perfect cup of coffee is ongoing and will likely kill him someday. That's not going to happen. That's overstated. How much coffee do you drink every day? First off, it's great to be here. Second off, it is a lot of coffee. I'm doing like a pot, a pot and a half, I think (gasps) is an average. Really? Oh, it's gasp-inducing hot. It's that bad? How much coffee do you drink? I drink two cups. Oh, that, see, that's amateur hour. Christina, yeah, I really don't need say you to, that. That's a good, healthy habit right there. Is I, what that I is. think you need to apply yourself more in the coffee drinking arts. I'm going to be honest with you. Well, I'm offended. That offends me. We're going to talk about UX content in just a minute. Everybody just take a seat. What kind of coffee do you drink? What so do you drink? I, my favorite is actually Pete's coffee, which I know. It is. Yeah. Yes. I, I love a good Pete's coffee. Uh, Major Dickinson's in case you're worried. Yes. Nope. That's if I have decaf, that's what I drink. Yeah. And I'm, I have to, so I'm a dedicated coffee drinker and yet I feel very embarrassed about my coffee taste because I feel like everybody's moved on to these really kind of like tartar light roast coffees. And I just love a good, I want to taste that campfire in my mouth. Like give it to me. That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm with you. I'm with you a hundred percent. We're going to get along great. (laughs) Chris. I always start off my podcast interviews by asking people to please share with me their journey to where they are now through the ever-changing, ever-evolving field of content strategy and UX writing. Tell me about yours. Yeah, I think I was just listening to your most recent episode with Kara, which was so good. And I I felt like she had like the classic intro, which is like, I never meant to be here. Um, I'm, I'm so happy I'm here, but this was a, a real uh, series of accidents. And I think um, like so many people, I started out with kind of one vision of where I was headed in college. I studied cultural anthropology, and then I got into a PhD program for cultural anthropology and headed there ready to like, you know, go the distance and put in whatever it is, 95 years of field work and then emerge with my PhD. And I think in the first like month, I was like, ooh, this is not a great fit for me. And so one of the things I did do, I stayed there for a year and um, I was able to start writing for the school paper. And that I felt like was for me, like the juiciest, most exciting thing. And I was doing like band profiles and like record reviews. A lot of it was like music stuff. I'm a big music nerd as well. And um, I think that just was like, 
that gave me that spark that I think sort of the, the academia, um, that kind of like deep theories of knowledge that were pooling around anthropology at the University of Chicago did not give me. Um, and so I think that kind of helped me think like, okay, I'm going to rethink where I want to go and writing really should be part of it. And so I left that PhD program and, and um, basically started doing travel writing for guidebooks like Lonely Planet and Fodor's. I wrote more music writing for like uh, the alternative weeklies. And then you'd mentioned National Novel Writing Month at the start of the episode. And in 1999, when I was 26, I just kind of started this thing where I invited a group of friends to write a terrible, terrible first draft of a book very quickly. And it ended up like taking on this really unexpected life. And then sort of 13 years later, yeah, it was a nonprofit and we had a full-time staff and an office and a lot of over-caffeinated novelists. But I think, this, you know, when you kind of start something and it grows, as it grows and you hire more people, you end up kind of delegating the parts of the job that you love the most. And you end up kind of doing the things, like for me, it was like fundraising um, and a lot of administrative work. And I think the organization I just loved and seeing that impact and, you know, being able to go into a bookstore and seeing all these great books on the shelf that started as National Novel Writing Manuscripts was so inspiring. But I think I missed the like the writing part of it and that kind of contact high that you get hanging out with writers. And so I left National Novel Writing Month and passed the baton on to the the staff and board. And, um, And then that was kind of my start of like spending more time writing. And I had a friend who worked at Dropbox and she was like, hey, we really need help with words. I went in to work as a contractor just on like one particular feature and I was hooked. Like it was definitely like this really kind of, I was just 40 at the time and it felt like a big career change, kind of that like probably the third career that I've had. Um, But I think there was something just so uniquely satisfying about like building things with people. And a lot of those lessons I'd learned about how to make this kind of cold interface feel human from working at National Novel Writing Month really applied to this work that I was doing at Dropbox. And so I stayed on and worked there for uh, almost five years. And then when Figma was posted their ad for like their first UX writer, I was like, yeah, I you know was using Figma at the time. I really felt like it had transformed the way uh, UX writing and content design could happen. And so I was like, this seems amazing. And so joined there as the very first UX writer and have been here at Figma ever since. So I have so many things to ask you. The first thing I do want to share with listeners is that uh, I pulled up Chris's bio, which I had not received in advance and had no idea that he was the actual founder of NaNoWriMo and proceeded to completely lose my mind as well as reveal myself (laughs) to be the amateur (laughs) podcaster that I am. So that is very exciting and a bonus to also interviewing the head of writer of UX writing at uh, Figma. So I just wanted to admit that and, and own my ignorance. Um, so Chris, I have to tell you, I could not agree more that Figma completely revolutionized the way that UX writers were able to collaborate and to have their work really sort of like surfaced and recognized within the product design field. I want to take a step back for a minute because I realized that I think that you may be the first head of UX writing that I have had on this podcast. We t- I have tended over the years to focus more with folks who are doing content strategy for large complex websites or folks that are actually leading larger content strategy teams at like the website or the or the enterprise level. 
you have actually grown the UX writing team at Figma from you. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. So when I started, it was the, the I think a lot of product design teams kind of hit, hit a point usually around like, I don't know, seven to 10 or so product designers where they start to realize that they're, they're spending a lot of time thinking about words and language and things are starting to really the models are usually starting to slip, right? Because they, it's a really a tough job to be a product designer, but then to also be thinking about how these taxonomies of words are going to intersect with each other or how um, kind of similar uh, sounding words may start causing problems in your like content system. That That's like a whole nother task, right? And it's a challenging one. And so when I started, I think the product design team and the product managers were starting to feel like, yeah, Figma was growing at that point. It was still just the UI, main UI design tool, but they were trying to think about how to be useful to different audiences. I think at that point too, FigJam, the kind of like online whiteboard was just on the horizon. And so trying to think about God, what is the intersection between this like space where you dream and brainstorm and have fun meetings and deploy cat stickers like and and this like very very plain quiet space where you're you know building these careful designs and so one of the really just absolutely wonderful things about starting at Figma as the first UX writer was just that I had such huge support from my manager No 11 who I think you know, I think a lot of times writers really have to argue for that seat at the design table. And I think that that really tends to start at the top. It's like, how does, how is the function perceived by the head of design? And I've always had this steadfast um, advocate and cheerleader and Noah, who like from the get-go were basically just like, listen, UX writing is really another kind of design. It's you're using language as your primary medium. Um, but the expectation is that you will be right in there um, thinking about interaction patterns and helping shape product strategy and um, helping set this kind of team vision for like what this group wants to achieve together. And I think once that's in place, like everything's going to flourish, right? It's just like the, the, the soil is in the garden and the plants are going to grow. And so I feel just very lucky, I think, to have that sense of warmth and inclusion from like the top down on the like, what, what are we there to do as writers? And yeah. And so I spent the first year just kind of on my own and in, at the time I was, I felt like I, so I had definitely read all of the like guidelines of like, so you're starting a new function at a company and there's a lot of great advice on how to do it. But I think that for me, I ended up kind of chucking a lot of that out the window and really just focusing on trying to build relationships. And I do think that, especially when you're starting something new, those relationships become the foundation of everything that you and the future people that you hire are going to be able to accomplish. And it feels like overly simplistic, but I do think that to me, like starting to build trust and, and helping people feel connected to you and know that if they're confused about something, like, what are you really there to do? Or how early in the design process should you be looped in? And um, what are things that they can ask of you and not ask of you? And I think when people feel safe asking those questions, that's how a new discipline can really establish itself um, and really start to thrive. And, and so that's kind of what I focused on. And then when we started hiring at about a year in, it was amazing. Like I had kind of, I think I'd forgotten how much of a struggle it is to be the, like the lone practitioner of something and to finally start to have that team back again. Um, when I had left the Dropbox US writing team, there were 15 of us. So it had grown from three of us when I started to 15. And that 
it's, I think writing is really like a social activity. I think I saw that through National Novel Writing Month. I think I see that in UX writing and content design. Like, I think our best ideas are made better by the people around us. And it can be kind of tough to just be the only writer. You still get great feedback from product designers or PMs or engineers. Like, great ideas come from everywhere. But there's something about having a group of other content designers and UX writers there to just go so nerdy on whether that should be a comma or an M dash or like, God forbid, a semicolon. Like, should there ever be a semicolon anywhere? And, and so the team grew pretty quickly to the point we hired our first two UX writers about two years ago. And then we are, there are now seven of us total. So there are six um, embedded, like I see individual contributor writers. And then there's me as the, the manager. And that's just been like the greatest journey. Like it, it feels so good to kind of like staff up and find like the right people for the right product areas. And to also start to see that, that, that like team camaraderie building, I think to me, in addition to like trust and building trust, one of the most important elements in any writing team is that sense of psychological safety with one another, the feeling like you can share anything at any stage and that people are going to meet you where you are and give the feedback that helps you make it better. And I think we definitely have that at Figma. And I just like every day I wake up and I'm just like, oh, thank goodness, because I'm also still doing writing. And it takes a village to write a modal. I really, really believe that. You realize you just literally described like every UX writer's dream job, right? <laughs> like what you just described it is like UX writing fanfic. That is what just is what just happened there. You talk about creating and fostering that sense of psychological safety. Practically, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I've learned from like, I've really been, again, so lucky to work with such amazing people. And I, I think part of that is like, you know, I think a writer's real like skill sets oftentimes have nothing to do with your ability to like craft like beautiful sentences or find the right words for things. It's really about like curiosity and empathy and asking the right questions at the right time. And so I think one of the things that I've always encouraged and that our team has really agreed with and brought, you know, brought to the table was just this idea that when people are showing work, the first thing you want to do is just making sure, make sure that you understand, like, what's the context? What, who's the audience? What are the, what are some things you've already tried? What are the constraints? I think the key to giving good feedback is really understanding, like, what does this person really need? And so I think when people show work at UX Writing Workshop, um, or at, we also have product design crits where writers show work to a broader audience of writers and designers, I think the key is just when people should work, just making sure you understand like what, what is most useful for you right now? What stage of the design process is this? And I think that Figma and Dropbox was this way too, which is so wonderful is like definitely a place of like humbleness, low ego, kindness. Um, and people are just really good at asking those questions about like what's useful for you right now, rather than trying to, I don't know, score points or zing somebody for, <laughs> for not following a style guideline. Um, and I think also part of it is just like, as a leader, just making sure you're sharing work as well. And my, my work is not great. You know, it's like I bring this the same delightfully imperfect, um, potential filled yet terrible first drafts of things and people give feedback and make it so much better. And I think that model of like everybody putting stuff out there um, getting that advice, making it better together, getting to someplace great through everybody's input. I think setting that example and tone is really helpful. Well, and I couldn't agree more that that comes from the top, 
right? That comes from leadership. It's almost impossible to foster an environment like that and to encourage people and to make people feel safe to share at that level. And you mentioned that Noah, your your boss, sort of sets the tone for that and, and appreciates and understands deeply the value of having writers who are able to perform under that, within that environment and the value that their work brings to the product design process. How did he get that way? (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good question. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that I, I mean, I'm being a little, a little goofy there, but I, I think what I want to ask is how and where do you think Noah saw the light when it came to oh, this is what content design is. This is what UX writing does within a product. And this is why it's so fundamentally important to a product success. It it is such a great question. I think Noah may have been born with that understanding, you know, kind of probably from the time he was crawling, he really understood content design as a type of product design. But beyond infancy, it's a good question. I mean, Noah has definitely worked at companies where I think he had seen the value of great UX writing. And um, and I think that that's part of the nice thing I think about our discipline kind of maturing is we start to have this track record, right? Which is pretty undeniable. You look at like um, the business value of UX writing, for instance, you know, there's so many cases now where you can very easily point to a writer as having saved the company millions of dollars or made the company millions of dollars. I mean, this is like literally a single writer that is focused on the right project or has kind of this perspective of like this encouragement to kind of roll up their sleeves and and troubleshoot problems and find opportunities. I think those are easy to find now. And I think our discipline has just done a great job of that. I think also the, this notion of like voice is such an interesting one. And I think Noah just really recognizes that generational products, right? These products that really are stand out, that are very unique, um, really need to have like, a really rigorous and thoughtful framework that is guiding like how they sound, how they meet people at different product moments, um, how the the thing that somebody reads out in Instagram, which is put out by the company, would meet what they would read when they hit the landing page, which would meet the the person that they meet when they first create an account and drop into the product for the first time. And I think kind of understanding that is really, at that point, that's like a that that's a magical job, right? That is a really, it's complex. There's a lot of moving parts. And so I think Noah just had realized like, it'd be great to have professionals here to kind of help us think through all that. So before I ask a question about that, I would like to say on the side, and I'm not going to put you on the spot. You said that those cases are easy to find. And I have people coming to me all the time asking me where those cases are. And I don't know. Oh my so gosh. If you know where they are and you can send them to me, I yes. will put them in the show notes because that's, I, I feel like I hear like people are begging for that everywhere, everywhere we go. And if there were some sort of like a centralized resource business cases that people could bring to their bosses, that could transform the field real quickly. Yeah, I th- I will definitely send some. I think if you Google ROI of UX writing is how I found one of them. But like one example from my time at Dropbox, you know, we had um, a UX writer there named Nick who was fantastic. And Nick, there was this problem where people were 
uh, deleting shared folders without realizing that if they had been shared on a folder and then they deleted it, it would delete it for everybody, right? Across I've the never done thing. that. Oh, wait. Yeah, never. Yes, I have. <laughs> yes. So one of the reasons that you probably have done it and many people have done it, and sometimes without even being aware of it, is back before there was a Nick, there was no confirmation moment of like explaining the stakes of this action, right? There may have been something that was kind of unclear, but I think Nick did this great job, worked with a design researcher, a PM, crafted a whole bunch of different takes on how to message what is going to happen to you um, and ended up landing on something that when it shipped, ended up saving Dropbox users something on the order of like, it was like millions of accidentally deleted files every week, which then translated into, we had an amazing support team based out of Athens, Greece, that the only way to restore some of those files was to reach out to these people. And so we were also taking up a ton of their time with these requests that ultimately all were fixed by Nick's confirmation dialogue that was like, are you sure this is what it's gonna do? And it, the effect was transformational. And so that I think is a great example of something where it is not like a particularly sexy bit of user interface, right? It's not like a winsome or playful thing that necessarily like makes people feel at home or carries a lot of like the brand voice into these small spaces. It was like, it's it, it was a very basic piece of UI, but Nick worked hard to find the right words. And I think that ended up really saving the company a lot of money. But more importantly, it saved like tens of thousands of users that horrifying feeling, which maybe you experience, which is like, oh, God, what did I just do? Well, we didn't experience it until somebody else reached out to us and said, exactly. oh, God, what have you done? Exactly. <laughs> and then it becomes, you know, a five alarm fire for sure. Um, so you talked a little bit about seeing the industry evolve and mature. I'm interested to hear where you see that and how you perceive that. I will say, as a side note, I came up, my work came up through website content strategy, really, starting in about 2006, 2007. Content design, which people really were calling product content strategy for a period of time, didn't really, I will say, come to light until about 2019. And that's when I think Shopify published their uh, content or their guide to content design. I think that there was another team, maybe it was the Dropbox team that renamed to content design from content strategy. I've lost track of who it was. And then Meta did it or Facebook at the time. And we launched Button, the content design conference, our content design conference in October of 2020. And we called it the product content strategy conference because that name was still catching on. Talk to me a bit. So from my vantage point, I saw it just explode in like 2021. Like suddenly everybody was talking about it. Companies were hiring for it. UX writing boot camps and certifications were just multiplying, you know, exponentially. Not that any of that necessarily signals evolution and maturation. It just signals more people. But talk to me from your perspective about what's going on there. Yeah, I think the way, so I'm definitely seeing it through like a Figma lens, right? Which I think, I do feel like Figma has become kind of the place where work happens and where it, in my mind, like the absolute best collaboration between content designers and product designers is happening in a Figma file where people are riffing on each other's work, right? Where product designers are kind of remixing words and the UX writers are remixing designs. And I think that that 
that super close form of collaboration, I think a version of that is starting to happen in more places in that. So one of the things when um, about a year ago, we decided it was time to like refresh our career levels at Figma. And so um, we had the product design career levels. We didn't have any UX writing career levels. We were just sort of borrowing the product design ones. And so when we created them, we made this very intentional decision to basically make the UX writing and the product design career levels word for word identical in like 75% of the areas, right? Craft was the only category where things were different. And even within craft, the UX writing team at Figma has design as one of those tracks. So the idea that you should feel comfortable, you know, diving into Figma and using components to kind of like um, express your ideas and help make your um, your your work clearer. I, I think that, that that notion of like kind of writing as design, it feels like that is now like you, you don't need to explain that a lot. And I also see this as like, as more and more product designers, I get to work with new product designers who come from different companies. They arrive with an understanding of like, oh, this, I understand what a UX writer or a content designer is there to do. I think there's still like a lot of explaining to do, which I, I think we forget like because change happens so quickly. And because I think the content designers and UX writers understand our values sometimes we kind of forget that we do, there's still some people that we need to explain it to. But I feel like a lot of that is becoming more and more of a given in, in like that that the design process is a, is a shared one, right? It is a shared space where language and visuals are kind of like closely intertwined. And where both people kind of the, the UX writer and the designer have that opportunity to kind of like shape this final experience. And, and it's something you build together. I definitely think that was not the case um, yeah, even like what, what I, you know, probably when I was at Dropbox in like 2015 or stuff or, or so, um, you know, we were still getting sketch files and downloading them <laughs> and then working on them and then emailing them back, you know, or putting them in Dropbox, sharing them back with the designer. And at that point, the designs had already moved forward like six steps, you know, and we were just like, okay, we'll just back to those words again. Um, but now I do think that like, that that notion of like a a real creative partnership, still it feels like that is gaining traction and kind of becoming the norm, and that's I think sort of the evolution that I'm I'm seeing, which I find super heartening. So I first want to say that uh, career pathing tool or overview that you put together, that your team put together, I had open in my browser for like a month straight. And I think it was actually Beth Dunn who shared that with me. Uh, I love she that. used to work with Andrew Schmidt, I think. Yeah. And who's who's with you at Figma now. And I have shared, so our work at Brain Traffic, we focus a lot more now. We still do complex website content strategy, but we're also really starting to work with leadership who is like content is really complicated across an enterprise. And we need to start pulling together all the different parts and pieces so that it is a little bit more of like a well-oiled, well-choreographed machine. And part of that becomes, okay, well, how do we create these career paths for content folks beyond, you know, you go from writer to the manager of writer, and then we don't know what to do with you. So thank you for that. I have shared it with so many clients and it's been so helpful. And I, and I'm hoping that it really has, um, gained continues to gain traction within within the field. So thank you. Um, uh, That's so great. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. I think the other thing is that 
I because of because of our event button and because of just the different conversations I'm able to have and and sort of see happen behind the scenes. There are still, and frankly, the clients we work with, there are still so many organizations out there where leadership doesn't get that it's, quote, more than just words. They don't understand the design process that takes place. They don't understand the critically importance of user understanding when we're coming to the table of words. They don't understand uh, the art and craft of creating usability within a product or of findability or navigability within a website, for for example. So there is still almost like this stagnation across, across so many organizations around that where leadership simply can't get their heads wrapped around it. And what's more, they don't have any curiosity about it, which I think is such a blocker. Or there's not psychological safety to be able to ask, I don't get it and I don't get it. <laughs> right. Right. right? Curiosity, not rewarded in so many organizations. Do you have any guidance or counsel for people who understand themselves, the value that they're bringing to the to the design process, who are working with designers who get it, which frankly is any designer who's ever had the opportunity to work with a UX writer. Do you have any counsel for them around like how to get the word out or um, how to, you know, change minds and influence hearts? Yeah, the, I mean, it was interesting when I had first started and was kind of trying to make a case for hiring more writers, you know, I put together, I think that probably the doc that all people that are founding like a UX writing or content design function do, which talks about in the abstract way, the impact, right. And that you can talk about um, making products more intuitive or delightful. You can talk about the business or revenue impacts, right. There's kind of that list of things. But there's no real substitute for being able to point to specific things that somebody has done as a writer or a content designer at your company that have changed kind of the trajectory of the way a team understands its work or the way users perceive this product. And so I think like I feel very, very privileged to have been able to like hire just incredible UX writers that came in and like very quickly established themselves um, and, and then just did work that was like undeniable. And that is su- that's such a terrible answer because I think even when you have people doing work that's undeniable, it can be denied, right? It's like if somebody is missing, if the, an executive is not able to kind of see like, oh my gosh, this person, like you were talking about uh, Andrew Schmidt. And so Andrew joined as the first writer on our um, Fig Jam, our whiteboard, and really like, became in a lot of ways, like the voice of Fig Jam, right? Came up with this interesting voice that was like clear, yet very playful, um, took some like very thoughtful, calculated big swings that really like just helped crystallize what this product should feel like. And it started, I think, along with the amazing design talents that were there on the product design side, it started to just create this like very, I don't know, this like unique sense of wonder and magic in, again, this like 2D board, right? That you're just dragging virtual stickies around on. But like, there was something about that voice that was so beguiling. And and that's really Andrew Schmidt's voice. And so um, I think that was like, everybody recognized that. But there are definitely like moments of like wins you can celebrate. So um, for Andrew Schmidt, it was, you know, one of the things he he really pushed for us to take a chance on this tooltip when we launched this like collaboration box 
And the tool tip that he proposed was don't click this box. And there was a lot of pushback internally. You know, people were like, I don't get this. I think we should just tell people what's in the box. Um, and I think Schmidt was like, okay, this, this is a new tool. This is our chance to like really help, you know, really get people's curiosity up. And I think it was, it was brilliant. It was risky and it worked and like Twitter just like loved it. And they, you know, there were so many rhapsodic posts around like, oh, what genius writing. And I think for Schmidt, it was kind of this real sigh of relief because I, I think he realized that people could be like, this is super annoying. Like, why is, why won't Figma just tell me what's in the box? But um, I think things like that, like really kind of capture people's attention. And it feels like a small thing, but the thought that's behind it is like deep. And the amount of revs that were in that is long. And I think being able to kind of share some of that work um, is really useful. I think also writers tend to be humble people. And I think as much as possible, if we can get over that humbleness and become like, real like sharers of some of our own work and our favorite moments. I think that that that's key as well. I could not agree more. I have no patience for shrinking violets in this field. We don't, that's not what we need. We need proud and loud and excited and collaborative folks who are, who are willing and able and brave about sharing their work. Um, and who are curious about other people's work, because I have also found that if you express curiosity about what other people do, they're a lot more likely to reciprocate. Um, I also need to correct myself quickly. Andrew spent many glorious years actually working on Slack. Um, I had to mix up with a different Andrew at HubSpot. Sorry, Andrew, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing that um, I would, on that like words of advice question, I think like one of the things like, so, writers have like innumerable superpowers, right? They are bringing so much to the table and so many unique skills and attributes. One of the things that I think writers can do to also like help people understand, like we are naturally, at, we live at the intersection of so many different disciplines. And I think embracing that role. And for instance, like I think I've seen writers develop this expertise by just having those curious conversations with sales teams and just being like, okay, what what is like, what are, what are our customers really struggling with right now? What are you struggling to explain? Like when you think about trying to sell the value of this to like a big company, what are the sticking points for you? And I think um, being somebody that can kind of understand, like there's, there's so many places where products are being used that I think oftentimes we, we kind of design in, in a vacuum. And that's like, we kind of go with what our gut instinct is and what we think maybe somebody might want. But in fact, like if you can be that person that brings together like this hard, great data from the sales team, talks to the user research and understands like, these are the three things that when somebody opens up a Figma file, really freak them out, right? I think like if you know what those things are, um, that becomes this really incredibly useful thing that you're bringing to the table. So it's it's not just words, it's not just strategy, it's like real data that can help us make decisions that end up building these products that are truly intuitive to users because it's built around information about what, what they want, what they love, and what they're struggling with. You know, really, Anna Baker, who works at Google, actually gave a great presentation um, at Button around how to get data that's going to help you make your point or how to get like baseline data so that when you do your work, you can show how it has changed. Because a lot of times I think teams just don't know what to measure. And I think that is a really great example of, you know what, 
go send an email, go find out for yourself and wield it on your own because we are empowered to do that, right? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and I think also design teams get busy and we kind of forget sometimes to check in on like, but what, what do people really want or who really is our audience for this? Is it like, is it a power user? Is it somebody that is um, on their way to becoming a power user? Or do we want this to be really accessible and intuitive to like somebody that is probably like at that bootcamp you'd mentioned, who is like trying out Figma or product design for the first time. And I think writers are also great understanders of like human audience and making sure that when people show up someplace, they feel welcome. I mean, writers are like the ultimate party host, even though so many of us are introverts or ambiverts, right? It's like we, we're we able to like read that room and understand like, where is somebody feeling a, a little confused or where is somebody feeling overwhelmed? And then figuring out the right words at that point is another art, but sensing that sense that this is actually going to throw people a lot if we just kind of like show them this thing without a little bit more context. Or here's two ideas. If we can connect these ideas together, uh, this whole thing will be much more effective in teaching somebody how to use that tool. And I do think like writers are just great at that. Um, I think we tend to be like much more empathic. I mean, writers are the best, right? So I think I can just stop there. Writers are the best. We know the way. Um, Put us in charge of everything. And cut. We are out of time. <laughs> Great. That was, it was like, I couldn't have planned it better. Uh, <laughs> we are, we are at the end of our time together. Um, what a joy it has been to talk to you. Um, if people are looking for more of you online, how can they find you? So I am Chris Beatty uh, at Twitter and I am on LinkedIn as well under my, my name. Um, and yeah, and I think that uh, we uh, we also try to share things in the Figma community. So um, uh, Rye Reed on my team, for instance, created this great overview for uh, kind of a Figma basics for UX writers. Um, our team is making stuff and putting it there as well. So um, yeah, that, those are all good places. Great, and we will include all of those links in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on the Content Strategy Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy services and events company. It's produced by Robert Mills with editing from Bear Value. Our transcripts are from Rev.com. You can find all kinds of episodes at contentstrategy.com. And you can learn more about Brain Traffic at braintraffic.com. See you soon.